Lawrence Bell was just 14 years old when he was wrongfully charged with murder, rape, and other crimes. Lawrence was ultimately convicted of those crimes and would not be eligible for parole for 56 years. After more than three decades behind bars, Lawrence was set free from a New Jersey prison. In this episode of The Surge Experience, I talked to Lawrence about his troubled childhood, his time behind bars, his eventual release, and his passion for justice and giving back to the community. We are here with uh, Lawrence Bell, who spent 30 years in a, a New Jersey State Prison. Yes. You were released uh, about uh, three years ago, yes. almost to the date. Yep. Take take me back to the beginning, because you went into prison at a really early age. Were you 14 years old? I was 14 years old when I was arrested and um, housed in, a, in an adult county jail in the detention center. And 16 when I went to prison, when okay. I went into the prison system. Okay. And you are how old today? I am 47. I'll be 48 in August. Wow. So you came out of, of prison when you were 44, 45? Yeah, about to turn 45, 44. What was your life like before you went to prison? Um, I always the, the, When people ask me this question, I tend to describe it as a conflation of chaos, right? It's just a, a, a conflation of systemic failure. Um, it was bad. It, it, it was bad on many levels. Like, it, it was just, where do you want to start? Um, Wherever you want to start. I mean, you don't have to go, you know, no, like no. chronologically or whatever. But what what do you remember from your childhood? So what I, what I remember is is I was, I'm the youngest of five, Um I'm the only mixed child in my family. I'm, I identify as a black man. My father was a black man. My brothers and my sister are 100% Irish. My mother was Irish. So life for me was a little bit different growing up and growing up with my mother. Um, she was very careful to make sure that my identity as a black man was sound, right? Like like mm-hmm. it, it was, uh, that, I think that was very intentional on her behalf while I had her, but Back to the point it is, I lost my father when I was 18 months, something like that. I, I never knew my father. I don't have a working memory of my father. Right. The only picture I've ever seen of my father is from his from his uh, funeral, him in the casket. Um, my mother was remarried to a person who I don't I don't speak his name because I think naming things are. Or a source of respect and honor. So this, okay. this person that my mother was married to is the man that ultimately killed my mother. So um, I don't. Yeah, he doesn't get that. I didn't realize your mom had been yeah. murdered. Okay. Well, I mean, so we'll we'll, we'll get into that. Okay. But so the, so so the thing is 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 this is that I grew up in an abusive household where me, my brothers, my sister, and my mother were tormented abused, beaten, starved, like we've been locked in closets, we've been you like like if you ever read the story, it would be like watching a movie. Like and this is this was my life. And and um but the strange thing is is I think growing up is I thought it was normal. 
right? I, I think I, I believed that because it was going on in my house, that this was what goes on in the world. Right. Uh, um, and I think that played a big part in me not never really telling people when I was young what was going on in my household. But I lost my mother when I was nine. Um, and so here, 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 is the, here is the thing. So I forever say that this man killed my mother, but I'm not saying it in terms that he shot her, stabbed her, strangled her, or anything like that. They were in the course of an argument. He raised his hand like she, like he was going to smack her, which he, had, which he's done any number of times, and she dropped it. Congestive heart failure. Um, and you were you were nine. I at was the nine. Time. Her head. I, she's, I sat with her with her head in my lap, waiting for the ambulance to come. The ambulance came. They took my mother away, and I never saw my mother again. He came back from the hospital a couple hours later and told me and my sister, your mother is dead. And this is verbatim. Your mother is dead. I better not hear a sound out of you. That was typical of my life, of our life growing up. Yeah. I. Uh, and where did you grow up? So I grew up. So my mother, <laughs> it's so weird to explain this to people. So for a time, my mother lived in New York. Okay. Right. My mother used to visit Camden, used to visit the woman who will become my grandmother, my adopted grandmother, used okay. to go and visit her in okay. Camden. Okay. But she's from New York, too, but she just had a summer house in Camden. In Camden. My mo- so I ended up being born in Camden while living in New York. Mm. So my mother went for a summer vacation. I'm, my birthday is August 8th. My mother went for a summer vacation. While on vacation, I was born. Brought back to New York maybe two, three months later, because I was a sickly child. When I was born, I was premature. Okay. So I had to stay in the hospital, the incubator, and all of that stuff. Um, and then moved back to Camden. We, we ended up moving to Camden when I was like four or five. And then after my mother died at nine, I came back to New York to live with the woman that was my grandmother. And then by the time I was, I want to say 11, I was back in Camden, um, kind of living on my own. At that point, I had ran away. But um, so you lived with uh, the woman who you described as your grandmother for a couple of years. Yeah, in with New her York. and her daughter. Okay. Yeah, we're in New York, right over here in uh, in Pink Houses. Oh, okay. On, so, and then so at eleven years old, you decide I don't want any part of this anymore. You no, okay. it, it wasn't that I didn't want any part of it. The woman, so I was never officially adopted. Like after I lost my mother, just the the the, the woman we all call her mama. Her name was Peggy. She was like my mother's one of my mother's best friend and the woman that we all identified as our grandmother. Um, they wanted to put me in a home and she was having none of it. So she took me and this and you got to understand this is 40 years ago. So, you know, laws and, you know, there was a lot of skirting of laws going it's on. It's like the mid 80s, I guess. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. 1985. Wow. I lost my mother. Wow. Um, so um, I ended up staying with her, but I was a little bit, you know, she was older. And I was going through, I guess my own hindsight is twenty twenty, but like I, I, my emotional issues made her made it hard for her to deal with me. So she employed or implored her daughter to step in and act as my foster mother. Okay. And she was. Was it like an older daughter of hers? It was an older daughter of hers, but not much older than me. She was older than me by like ten years, twelve years. Okay. Something like that. Okay. Um, no matter how hard she tried, she wasn't parent material and she became as abusive as the abuse that i known growing up and at, at some point in my life I just uh, at that early age I just was like I'm not like I'm not gonna have people just beating on me like like 
it's just not right because you had experienced a lot of that when you were living with your your dad and your mom before you were or your my mother's husband Okay. Did you I'm refer not, to him back then as your stepdad or anything like that? Or? I, I did back okay. then until, you know, until I, I don't know. It, 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 that's just one of, that's one of those very touchy things with me. Like, like I, like I stopped the court, like in the courtroom, like the judge had at one point was like, yeah, you're, no, it's not my dad. Like, no. Like I, I, I again, venerating and, and respectful and honor, like coming name and naming things and titling things and, yeah, you describe. I read an article. Uh, I think it was written by one of your professors, Chris, Chris Hedges. Hedges yeah. And I believe in that article, you talked about a time. You talked about the abuse that you experienced when you lived with your mom and her husband. Uh, and you describe a time where I think you had guinea pigs. Yeah, and he and fed. He had he had these these dogs. They were like um, I don't know. I guess they were like Siberian Huskies. They looked just like wolves. Mm. Uh, um, and I had a couple of guinea pigs. I think I had like three guinea pigs. And we used to keep them in the back room with a little piece of wood on the door so they couldn't hop out. Like, mm-hmm. it was my room. Mm-hmm. Um, but one day he came, like, like, just in his normal, like, angry self and was just like, clean up the room. Clean up behind them damn guinea pigs. Yada, 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 yada. And I was like, okay, you know, they're my guinea pigs. I'm going to do it. But I, I guess I didn't do it fast enough. And he ended up opening the door and letting his dogs going there and they ate my guinea pigs they killed my guinea pigs um another time i i had a poodle uh, uh me and my sister it was me it was the family's poodle but it was me and my sister's poodle like we took care of it and one eye like stray dog type poodle but we loved the dog dog used to used to bark a lot so one it was in the winter and he threw the dog outside in the backyard and the dog was just barking at the door to get in because it was cold he threw hot water on the dog the dog like literally froze solid, right? And I say these things, and, and sometimes people look almost incredulous, right? But it's in the records. It's not yeah. like this is just what 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 life was like for us. And, and you know, I I think that looking back now, I don't think that the the, the, the circumstances could exist in that way today, right? Because, you know, with ACS and DIFES and all that stuff, there's been so much overhaul and complaint and that it's more, you know, there's more attention given to people that are in these situations, you know, abuse, abusive homes and things like that. But back then, you know, I, I just know that back then it wasn't, for lack of a better term, it wasn't a big thing, right? It, it was the ghetto's dirty little secret that mm. no one ever talked about. Right. So... Sometimes people experience what is clearly abuse uh, from, you know, as seen from the inside and from the outside. But from the outside, it looks normal. Is it possible that it looked normal to everyone else on the outside? Like, did you all do normal family things ever? Go out as a family, go to the movies, take pictures at Sears, nothing? Was it always a broken home it was always abuse. it was always a broken home i have moments now that i think are more implanted memories than actual memories right like uh, um during during my resentencing my my sister surfaced a picture of me sitting on the easter bunny's lap right i have no recollection of ever taking that picture or anything but i know what happened because i seen the picture but you know it, it, it's probably the saddest part of my reality is that when i think about my childhood I don't have a happy memory. 
Right? Like, I, I really, really don't. Like, I can tell you what my earliest childhood memory is. Um, and, and, you know, I think Chris had just talked about it in his article. It was, I was in kindergarten. I was going to half-day school, half-day kindergarten, come home for the half-day. And I came home to find my mother sitting in the chair with a, a tow truck chain around her neck and a shotgun pointed in her face. Her husband held her there like that. I don't know what was going on. And, and I, I just, the thing that always stands out to me was the calm from my mother. And she just told me to go upstairs. She said, go upstairs. It's fine. Go upstairs. Um, and then I have a lot of other memories. Like, like I have a lot of memories, but there, there are a couple of things that, um, that stand out. I have a lot of memories, but none of them are really, really good. Like, I, I don't really, like, I can remember, like, like my best memory of my mother is just like the everyday thing that I used to get up and sit at my mother's feet before I go to, like, I always was with my mother. Like, I would always, when she cooks, I'm in there when she's cooking, when she's, I remember my mother, I remember being so young, my mother having to give me a note to go to the corner store to get her a pack of Cools and a Pepsi. Right, mm-hmm. that was like our routine. But mm-hmm. um, although I'm sure that my mother took us places and tried to do things with us, I have no work and memory of any. Right, of that because stuff. you had you said there were other siblings. You have right. siblings, right? Uh, and you all were in the same house at we all times the, growing up. Yeah, but but th- again, being my father's only child and the only black child in the house. It was a little bit different because my my siblings had all had the same father, and he used to come and get them, but he wouldn't get me. He wouldn't take me. I later learned in life that he held a certain amount of resentment towards the fact that I was black. Um, my mother's husband was black. He was white, right? So it was just kind of like you know, I, and I can only imagine the space that I put him in. But I still, as an adult, I still think like. That's foul. You don't do that right. with five children. You come of and grab course. four and leave. Of course. You know, so like, uh, um, and it got to the point, interestingly, like as I got older, like when I was like seven, eight years old, like he used to come by, like I w- if he tried to give me a gift, I wouldn't accept it from him. Right. It was just like, I don't like you because you don't like me. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think that, um, I think that children are much more perceptive than we give them credit for. And I think that I was in that space. Like, Based on what you described, it's clear that your your childhood was very much an abusive, painful childhood. So much so that you don't have any good memories because you described the, the, the picture that your your sister provided to you. You don't even remember that. And so then you go to live with your this grandmother figure and her daughter. And you're there for just a couple of years and you decide, I can't do this anymore. Right. So... What does that mean? Because you're really young at the time. You're like not uh, 10, 11 years old. How do you, what, you just like got up and left? So we were living here in New York um, and Debbie decided that she wanted to go back to Jersey. We ended up going back to Jersey. Debbie oh, is? My my grandmother's daughter. Okay. So so let me, let, 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 before I say anything more, let me, let, let me, this is always my disclaimer. My grandmother, Peggy Goins, Sarah Goins, by far. God rest her soul, the best, most beautiful person I've ever encountered in my life. Literally the epitome of everything good, right? Not a flaw with this woman. Like this is a woman that I've watched her, like people, like like somebody will bring a friend over for dinner and 
you know, they would tell their story like they don't have nowhere to go or they need. And she would just be like, there's a fold out couch right there. Stay as long as you like. She's Southern hospitality, the epitome of everything. Everybody that knew her called her mama. Mm-hmm. Everyone. Um, her daughter, not so much. So we ended up moving back to New Jersey, coming back to New Jersey to the house that was my grandmother's house. We stayed in that house for a while. At some point, Debbie decided that she was moving across town to go be with a boyfriend. And it just wasn't going to work. Like the the combination of the abuse and then it was going to be a one-bedroom apartment. And I was just like, no, I don't want to leave. I'm staying where I'm at. Right? So I ended up staying which, in what came to be an abandoned house um, at 11. In Camden. Camden. In Camden, New Jersey. Uh, um, That's so hard to believe because I think about when I was 11 years old. I didn't have any such choice, but it obviously the Debbie, the the young lady who's taking care of you, it sounds like she was just focused on kind of moving forward with her life. Kind of focused on moving on with her life. And yeah. to her defense, we have now learned that she suffers from different issues, bipolar disorder, sure. this, this. But we didn't know any of that stuff back then. Um, but long story short, it, it's between the ages of 11 and 14 at the time I got arrested, I was... I'll say 12, closer to 12, like almost 12 and 14. I was living in an abandoned house, in abandoned houses. Um, I've lived in, between the ages of zero and 14, I lived in 14 different addresses, right? Uh, um, it's a thing called peri-migration, right? Okay. So it robs you of stability, it robs you of any sense of normalcy, whatever the case may be. And I don't make any excuses. Like, I, I don't, these are just the facts of my life. And I just think that at, at that young age, I had so much going on, I didn't know how to process what was going on in my life. It's hard for me, or I'm sure a lot of the listeners, to imagine what that period looks like. You're 11, 12, 13. Are you living with anyone in these abandoned homes? Mm-hmm. How are you eating? How How is it that no one's noticing so, a kid living in abandoned homes? Well, what I'll say is I was eating because I was selling drugs. I was a petty drug dealer selling marijuana. Um, ironically, my foster mother, whenever you hear me say my foster mother, I'm referring to Debbie. Debbie is the person that put my first package of drugs in my hands to sell, which says something about who she is as an individual. Um, my sister, by this time, my sister had her first child and was living down the street with her child's father. Um, she tried to look after me as much as she can. Like, like, would see we were on the same block, but um, she was 17. Like, how much could she really, really tell me? And was not in a position to do anything for her, for me, or for herself, yet alone for me. Um, by that time, the streets had just kind of taken over me. Like, like it, it, I got embraced by by some older guys that was in the street, and they helped me become a street dude, quote unquote, a street dude. Right. Right. Like, I like. How to sell drugs, how to save money, how to, you know, dress myself, how to... It's weird now when I think about it, but back then it was just... It was a sense of belonging, like people... Of course. Like like somebody cared, somebody cared right? No matter what their intentions may have been, you know, hindsight, I can look back and see now that it was usury, that it was... But back then all that mattered was I had food, 
even though the house was a was an abandoned house, I had a place to stay that I felt safe at. Cause I, I used to lock the door. Okay. So, so I would lock I would lock the front door and climb up onto the porch roof. Okay. And go in through the front bedroom window. Okay. So the front door always stayed locked, and that's okay. how I would come in and out the house. So I had. Was there running water? I mean, no gas. There was no electricity. No. There was right. running water. Okay. There was, well, it was cold water. It was cold water. But there was no electricity. But yeah. I mean, I, the, the house was full of candles, and when I needed showers, stuff like that, I can go to friends. I would go to my sister. I would, you know, like I would just kind of like be everywhere. Were you scared at all during this period? Very much so. But what I had learned from another friend of mine was to like the fear is the thing that keeps you alive. So there's a story that I tell people, something that I used to do when I lived in this house. I used to take dirt and put dirt on the, on the steps of the porch. It was a concrete porch. So that if you stepped on the porch, you could hear the of someone stepping in the dirt. So that I would know if someone was coming into the house. Um, what, did people come by no, often? Or no, you, no, you just, just looking out making I, sure that... Because, so in order for you to really understand this, you have, you have to really... You have to put Camden... Circa 1985, 86, from from the mid-80s to the mid-90s, and think about the context of Camden. Ten square miles, murder capital per capita of the United States of America, not just of New Jersey, of the United States of America. Drugs, violence, prostitution, every, like, it was just every, in almost every corner in Camden at that time was a drug corner, right? So you become, like, desensitized to a lot of things like like gunshots i'm not bothered to this day i'm not bothered by gunshots uh, um because it was a common it was a common thing like seeing people stab hitting the head with bats like like you you become so desensitized to that thing that you're not really i think you're more aware than afraid if that makes sense mm-hmm. like, like like you you, you mm-hmm. develop ironically it's almost like the same thing that you develop in prison mm-hmm. right so in prison, you 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 develop this this like hyper awareness. Like you're always, like I know what's going on when I walk into a room. I scan the room. I know who's who. I know who's where. I know where the exits are. I know. I hear that from friends of mine who are well, police officers and in particular people who have served in the military, especially if they went to war or had right. to live that kind of life. Well, yeah. Camden in in that time frame was a war zone unto itself. Again, you have to you have to think about what, what I'm saying here. Ten square miles, right? City of Camden, not Camden County, the city of Camden. Ten square miles. You can walk from one end of Camden to the other end of Camden, walking in an hour's time. Like walk from 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 North Camden, which is when you come over the bridge from Philly, to Pensalkin, which is the next town outside of Camden City, in 45 minutes to an hour walking. Right, that tells you how small it is. Literally putting down more bodies per capita than the entire United States. Um, war zone. I mean, that's the only way that I can describe it. What can you tell me about the incident that you were involved in at age 14 that ultimately led to your arrest, which ultimately led to a conviction? Okay. Uh, can you talk about yeah, that incident? I, I can tell you the whole story. Okay. I'll give you the abbreviated version of it, okay. but this is the whole story. It was June 26, 1990. I was sitting on the porch of that abandoned house. I am 14 years old. Um, there's a guy. I, I don't know if you want me to I don't care how his name is. His name is James Jones. They called him Rashad. He's my co-defendant. Um, 
he comes walking through the parking lot. We live right across, well, the house was right across the street from a Goodwill. So he come walking through the Goodwill parking lot, and he comes to me and says, hey, man, they just jumped my brother, David. David is his youngest brother, but is, is a friend of mine that I went to school with. I don't know James Jones. He had just been released from, from the county jail not too long ago, and that's how I met him. But he says, you know, they jumped David, whatever the case may be, let's go get him. So I'm like, okay, whatever. Like, I, I really don't know what I intended to do, but I was like, okay, you know, this is a, um, a friend of mine. And at that time, I really suffered from like, like this, this loyalty thing, right? Like, like if you're, I have attachment issues. I still have them like, like attachment and, and abandonment issues, but whatever the case, um, I get up and I go with him. We go walking around supposedly looking for these guys that were supposed to have jumped his brother. He had a pistol. We don't find him, and he just asks me, like, out of the blue, like, hey, you want to go on a robbery with me? The part of me that, part of me wanted to say no because it's not what I do. Like, I sell, I sell drugs. I'm like, right. but then there's another part of me that's like, yeah, go with him, right? Again, this, I'm, I'm 14. He's right. 21, going right. on 22. Right. Um, so I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. Not, I mean, I didn't say it that way, but I'm like, yeah. And we start walking. We walk up to a place called the Rosedale Tavern. It's a bar in Camden on, on the outskirts of Camden in Pensalkin. And um, remember I told you, you can walk from one end of Camden to the other in 45 right. minutes. So we walk about a half hour. And he tells me to wait by the curb. I stand there and I wait. And he goes over to a car. So he puts his face in the car window for a little bit. And then he stands up over the car and he waves me over like, hey, come here, come here. So I go running over to the car. He's like, get in. I jump in the back passenger seat. He jumps in the back driver's side seat. And there's a woman in the car. And he's just, he, he tells her, shut up and drive. And now I'm panicked because now, like, we're in the middle of it and I don't know what to do. And I'm like, like, like excuse my language. I'm like, oh, like I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. So he tells her to drive off. He reaches in the front. He grabs her purse, hands me the purse, tells me to search, the, uh, uh, to search her purse. I search her purse. I'm like, man, there ain't nothing in here. I throw the purse back over this front seat. I throw the purse. I, I smile now, but it wasn't funny. But it literally scared me. I threw the purse over the front seat, and the little boy pops up. Her son, her oh, three-year-old son, was in the front of the, the car. Front seat. I didn't see him, and I guess the purse hit him and made him stand up, and it startled me like, of like, course like, it did. like, oh, yeah, what the? right. And <laughs> I it, don't mean to laugh, but yeah, that would, I mean, would and, startle anyone. And at that point, I'm like, listen, man, like, 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 I, I want out, like, like, right. like, I'm, I'm, like, like, yo, like, I'm. Like, let me out. Like, let me out. Sure. He's like, no, no, no. Just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Da, 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 da. So he has her drive into this area, in, in, into a, uh, 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 down by the train tracks, like a lot. And he tells, he gets out, takes her out of the car, tells me to watch the boy. He goes around the corner, comes back like 10, 15 minutes later, like, yo, she ran. And I'm like, what do you mean she ran? Like, what do you, like, in my head, I'm saying to myself, if she ran, we, like, she's going to go tell. Like, we got to, we got to leave. We got to leave. So we get in, he, he jumps in the car, drives the car out, gets me like two blocks from where I live at. I jump out of the car and leave. He, unbeknownst to me at the time, he takes the boy back to the family, which means he knew who the girl was. Right. Right. Takes the boy back to the family. They're all looking for the, because she had taken her brothers to the bar, being responsible, taking her brothers to the bar to get something to drink. It was driving them home. She was the designated driver. I didn't. I okay. learned all of this stuff after the fact. Okay. Um, How long were you in the car with the son? About 10 minutes. 10, okay. 10, 15 minutes. Did your co-defendant, he took the, the lady, the driver, out of the car? Out of the car. And did you know at the time what his intention was? No. 
I didn't. And so she obviously left unwillingly. He's uh, what? She's you know, screaming and no, he's just he, he's, he, he's she's calm. She's calm. She's calm. But I, now looking back, she's calm in the face of her child. Her child, right? right. Did he have a, a gun? Your yeah, co-defendant? He had a, a gun on her, but not like right on like her, but on like her. yeah. And um, where are you guys? I mean, I know you're in Camden, but are you on uh, outside of a park? Are you on an we're, off street? We're, it's an off street with a, with like a dirt road that leads in towards the train tracks. Like, oh, I see. It, it's literally nothing around there. It, okay. It's just field and trees and shrubs and dirt and. Because um, you're 14 and you're thinking, because you were asked, he asked you, your co-defendant, to come along for a robbery. Right. And then. Obviously, all this goes down. All oh, this goes down. You, you see the kid. You want out. I want out. And at some point, you're probably thinking, "This seems like it's more than a robbery, right?" Because we could. He could have just robbed her then and there. Right. But he takes her out of, out the, of the car, car and out of your view. Right. Yeah. He comes. He, he comes back. Uh, um. He jumps in. We leave. Drop the kid off. Whatever. The next day. Did he explain where the mother was? Yeah, mother. No, he was? just said. He just said she ran. She ran. He said she ran. She got okay. away. Okay. Um, he came running back, jumped in the car, said she ran, whatever the case may be. And then the next day, the um, the police. So let me let, let let me continue. He drops me off. I get out the car. I leave. I don't even go back to the house that, to the abandoned house that I've been staying in. I actually go to my sister's house, right down the street. Knock on the door, go in there, and I go downstairs and I spend the night at my sister's house. Why? I don't know. You feel like scared or like? I, I, I think so. Just I, nervous. I think, yeah. I I, I just. I just knew I didn't want to be by myself. Got it. Um, next day comes. I'm like, as, as weird as this may sound, I'm not thinking anything of it. Like, it's, it's just, all right, the day I, I made it through the night, whatever happened, happened. I don't know what's going on. Um, my foster mother calls to my sister's house and says, where's your brother? My sister's like, oh, he's outside. He's running around. He, you know, he's doing what he's doing. She was like, well, get him and tell him to stay there. I'm coming to come, come and get him. She comes, gets me. See, I get she pulls up, gets me in the car, and was like, uh, "The police want to talk to you." And I'm like, "About what?" Now, mind you, a week and a half before that, I had been in a pretty bad car accident in a stolen car. Uh, I didn't know the car was stolen. I bought it from somebody, but stolen car, whatever the case may be. You bought a car at 14? Yeah, like 400 dollars, like a wow, thing, like not from okay. a lot or nothing. No, like I that. know. Like, <laughs> um, You're right. So, uh, uh, so you knew how to drive. Yeah, back then I've known how to drive since I was twelve. Since you were twelve. So when I first started selling drugs, I paid a, a Mexican guy to teach me how to okay, drive. I know okay. this sounds weird, but no, I learned how to drive a stick. Uh-huh. I never learned how to drive an automatic. Okay. But anyway, she pulls up, tells me the cops are looking for me. She's like, "What happened?" And I'm like, "I don't know." I said, "You know, maybe it's about the car, or whatever the case." And we get down to the police station. Um, I learned some. They, I get in there. We go upstairs and get in the elevator. The elevator. The, the Police administration building has two doors when you get up to the second floor. One side is for homicide. The other side is for juvenile uh, division. We're standing at the juvenile division door ringing a bell. Right. The door behind us opens. Lawrence Bell. And we both turn around looking. I'm like, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what's going on. I'm like, okay, bring me in. <coughs> Excuse me. Bring me in. Tell me the story. Long story short. Well, not long story short, but he had taken the boy home. The woman was raped and strangled. He had taken the boy home. And then to try to throw the police off of the trail, actually participated in the search party looking for her. 
right? So when they got to the area where the body was, he came out there like, nah, look back there, ain't nobody back there. It was only a couple hours later that another officer, another search party went back there and found the body. They immediately detained him. He told them the reverse of everything. That he stayed in the car. Oh my goodness. I did this, this. Well, really? he told a couple of different versions wow. of, of the of the story. Um my my stepmother just completely dropped the ball. And, and I say that to say that that uh, um they got me into an interrogation room. They played the tape of what he said. I said, no, that's not true. That didn't happen, yada, 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 yada. So we spent like 45 minutes in the police interrogation room with no recording. They called it a pre-interrogation interview. Um, but all through this interrogation, I'm telling this pre-interrogation interview, I tell them, no, I didn't. No, that's not true. 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 My foster mother steps out. She says she has to use the bathroom. She steps out. The detectives step out. When she tries to come back, the detectives tell her that I told them that I didn't want her in the room, and she went with it. A couple of things wrong with that. Again, I don't have, I'm 14 years old. I don't have right. the right to say I don't want anybody there. And even if I say it, she, as the adult, can ex- exert her right and say, I don't care what he wants. I'm going to be in there. That's not what she did. She left me in a room with three seasoned d- detectives, and don't ask me how. Somehow they ended up with a confession to a crime that I did not commit. Okay, so you confessed to doing what your co-defendant actually did. Right. I, I can, to, to one of the versions of what he said. Oh, wow. Um, because you're 14. I'm you probably, 14. How long were you in the room, did you like say? Like two and a half hours. So you're probably scared. scared you're tired. And, and Hungry. And yeah. like, there's, there's just a lot going on. Like The, the, the biggest thing, and people think... I've said this to people before, and they say, oh, that's not enough to make me confess to a crime that I didn't commit. But what they said to me, one of the things that they said to me was, if you don't tell us what happened, and by what happened, they're saying what the co-defendant said, then you're going to get an extra 10 years in prison. 14 years old, 10 years. Think about what 10 years means to a Mm 14-year-old, right? An extra 10 years. So Mm -hmm. I don't even know what time I'm facing, but you're saying an extra 10 years. We're going to call the judge and make you get an extra 10 years. And at that point, it was just, I was just literally in a space where I just, I wanted out. I wanted out of that room, right? And I was just, it, like, like I think I felt myself just resign. Like, okay, whatever. Like, whatever you say. Whatever you say. Right? Now, fast forward, like, two weeks later, I attempt to recant all of it. Like, no, they, they made me say, I tell the lawyer, no, that's not what happened. Here's what really happened. This, 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 and that, da, 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 da. Judge says no. And was this a public defender that it was you a, it eventually was a pu- given? Well, yeah, it was a public defender. Um, but there's a inter- but there's a very interesting part of this, right? So, eleven physical pieces of evidence, right? Fingerprints. Later, we found out DNA, uh, uh, hair on like on the victim in the victim's car. None of it is mine. When you say later, how much later are we talking? Well, the DNA we found out twenty years later. <laughs> twenty years well, later, well, yeah. six, sixteen years, seventeen years later. Okay. But like, uh, uh, so when so the part that I didn't that I left out by not by mistake, but just error of omission is when my co-defendant came back saying that she ran, he jumped across the hood of the car. So his footprint is on the hood of the car. They have footprints of two people exiting the car, his and hers. At the time, he wore like a size ten. She wore whatever she wore, and she had slippers on. And at the time, I wore like a like a 
six, five or six right. in boys. Right. But there's only two sets of footprints. Mm-hmm. The ground was partially muddy. So they were able to get foot uh, footprint moldings an inch and a quarter deep. Tell you how wet the ground was. Mm. But there's only two sets of footprints. Mm. So if I got out of the car in any way, did I magically levitate over the dirt? Right. right, right. Again, and it sounds Perry Mason-ish, but it's a fact. Right, the, the, look in the records. It's it's fact. No fingerprints of mine in the car. The only piece of physical evidence that they had linking me to the crime was I had very long hair, like very, really, really long hair. They found a fiber of my hair on my co-defendant, not on the victim, not. Right. And then they had found a piece of black fiber uh-oh, that they associate with my shorts because I had on black shorts. But the problem with fiber analysis is, and you can look this up as well, you're wearing a black shirt right now. There is, through fiber analysis, they can take a piece of that shirt and there's no way to say that it came from that piece of sh- from that shirt. Mm. What they can say is, is that it is a black number five that was produced on such and such date and, and we made, I don't know how they measure it, like 700 pounds and from that 700 pounds, 30,000 shirts were made. You, you understand what I'm saying? They can't pinpoint a piece of fiber to a particular shirt, right? This is not TV where they can do that. Fiber analysis is not an exact science at all. But they found a piece, a piece of black fiber in the car. Right? So that's the only two pieces of evidence that they have. But now, his fingerprints all over the car, his hair all over the car and over the victim, his semen in the victim, uh, 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 well, they, they, his, like, they, they had 11 pieces of physical evidence that tied him to the scene of the crime. Even at the time of the trial? At the time of the trial. Okay. So at the time of the trial, they didn't do DNA testing. Right. They did blood type testing. Right. Right. The blood type testing confirmed him as the source of the crime scene evidence. But it couldn't exclude me because the state didn't perform some type of test on the victim's stomach. They needed to take a piece of her stomach and do a test. They didn't do it, right? They, they, they said, we can't say it's him, but we can't rule him out. Um, the confession, we argued against the confession saying, listen, it should have been inadmissible just based on the fact that you have a 14-year-old uncounseled juvenile being interrogated by three seasoned homicide detectives. Years later, the lead detective, Harry Glemzer, was like defamed by the New Jersey Supreme Court saying that this guy, his his methods of, of obtaining confessions are offensive to all of the protections of Miranda. Mm. Now, they said this three, four, five years after I made the allegations. Like, yo, he forced me to make this confession. confession. But, and you ultimately, I guess you signed a confession right. for uh, um, for murder and rape. Right. And then in trial, I recanted and I told them my, my, my statement, my, my actual involvement would have been for a robbery and a kidnapping. Sure. Right. Not, I'm not taking it light. And I also, and I, and I prefaced, I always say this, like I understand how my role in this led to. Right. So I don't negate that. But we're talking about a 14 year old with a 21 year old co-defendant who, by the way, we didn't know this at the time. But during Alicia and Jen's work in uncovering my case to get me out of prison, this guy had done this like six times in, a, in like a two month period. Right. And to be clear, we're talking about the attorneys who worked on your case. Alicia oh, my, Hubbard. Alicia Hubbard and, and Jennifer Saletti. OK. Right. Okay. Uh, um, But 
again, we discovered this later. He had done this six times in the past two, in the two months leading up to this time. Uh oh. Wow. So, how long did the trial last? Trial lasted, I believe, five days. Five days. And so, you are convicted of murder. Everything. I'm convicted of, I I got convicted of 11 counts. Um, Don't ask me to name all of them. Yeah, no. But but, murder, robbery, rape, kidnapping. Sure. But a bunch of weapons possessions. And I was sentenced to a term of life plus 50 years with a 55-year parole disqualifier. Wow. So I want to pick up there. I want to take a quick break and pick up right there when we come back. All right. No problem. Hey, where you been? The Surge Experience is bringing you interviews with thoughtful people on some interesting topics. We go deep and sometimes not so deep. Check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other platforms. We're also on DC Radio 96.3 HD. Visit us at thesurgeexperience.com. Before the break, we were talking about trial and you being convicted of murder and rape at age, were you 14 or 15 at this time? Uh, at the time of my trial, I was 16. Oh, you were 16? Yeah. Okay. I had just turned 16. Good. I went to trial in April of 1992. Oh, so it took a couple of years. Yeah, I sat in, in, in the Camden County Jail, um, which is an entirely different, a whole different story for you. It's, I was the, I was admitted into the Camden County Jail at 15. I was the youngest person to ever be admitted into the Camden County Jail. And I was, a, I was a little guy. I was like five foot, maybe 105 pounds, 110 pounds. And the, uh, the, the, the admissions sergeant didn't want to take me. Right. He literally was like, no, like, like what, what, do you, what do you want me to do with him? Like, I, he's, it's not a daycare. We don't have no. Um, and because of that, I was put in 23 and one lockdown for like the first six months. And they put me they they put me in it was supposed to be protective custody, but because you had adults in protective custody, they had to put me in a segregation unit, like a, a lockup unit, like yeah. if you gotten in trouble. Right. So So were, so you were alone? I was alone. Alone at age sixteen. Yeah. No, 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 no. At age fifteen. At age fifteen. Right, because you're waiting, right, because you didn't get okay. You didn't go to prison yet. You were in right. jail. Okay. In the in the Camden County jail. Wow. Um that was I've been through a lot of things in prison, but that was the hardest time of my life. Why was it the hardest time? Because I'm 15 years old, locked in a cell 23 hours a day with nothing but my thoughts. Okay. So I didn't realize. So it wasn't. So they treated you as if you were an adult in solitary confinement for the purpose of protecting you because you were an adult. Right. Okay. I had assumed that they would give you like some liberties, but you were alone. No, it's literally I was let out. Right. For an hour a day, I oh my had goodness. that hour I had to take a shower, use the phone if I needed to use the phone, clean my cell, whatever it is that I need to do, I had to do in that hour. That's and that hour a day wasn't like people. When you hear twenty three and one, people think it's a, a a consistent one. No, it's when they get to you. Oh wow! When they feel like it, when they have, um, and and, and I'll tell you, if I'm being one hundred percent honest with you, I came out of that messed up. Like, like, like I would, I just like, I have a, um, to this day, like I have an obsession with counting things and it literally comes from counting the bricks 
the lines that separated the bricks, how many vertical, how many horizontal names on the wall. Like I had nothing to do. Like I literally, I didn't have a TV, a radio, like the magazines that, that, that were in there were magazines from like two years ago that were just left in the cell. You know, I've read them and, and that's where I developed this thing of counting. Like I count the, how many times the word the is in a magazine, mm. right? Just trying to, to do something. Like I didn't, I couldn't even look out. So the, the, the the cells, their metal door, and then they have like a, um, you know, the little the round windows that you find on boats. I forgot yes. what they call them. Uh, portholes. Portholes. Yeah. They had like porthole windows in the doors, right? I was too short to even look out of the door to see what was going on out in the portal. So my my world was I could climb up on the bed and look outside the other way, but I was facing a wall, right? So it, it was literally just this dull drab seafoam green room for 23 hours a day for 23 hours for two years no 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 for for five and a half months five and a half months to the point to where we ended up the the lawyer that i had like i just begged her like listen you gotta talk i can't like it's right like i'm like i started hearing voices like literally and so they made an agreement. I had to sign a waiver to go to, I, it's crazy. I had to sign a waiver to go to protective custody. Mm. So they take, me out of, they take me out of the segregation unit. They put me in protective custody where there's other adults. I have a little more freedom. You signed a waiver at age 15. To get out of <laughs> segregation. And, to, and your waiver meant something to them legally, I guess. They figured, yeah, well, even though you yeah, were in an well, adult, but they, okay. But, All right, so you signed a waiver, and then you go to protective stu- uh, custody right. to be around adults. But here, but, but here's the thing. Yeah. Camden County Jail, circa 1990, riots. Like, if, if, look it up. Like, like bringing in the state troopers, dogs, damn near burnt the whole building down. Whatever. So it's, Camden County Jail is a reflection of Camden City mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. But I go into PC. What is in PC in Camden County Jail? In most county jails? I don't know. The people that are not safe in population. Mm. Rapists, pedophiles, mm. right? Anyway, I go into PC. I'm in there. They put me in a cell. Like So you had, it, it was 12 people, but there's only three cells. It's supposed to be two-man cells, but there are actually three. They put three people because they put some, one person on the floor. So you have three cells, three people, nine, and then you have three people sleeping out in the day room. I'm not allowed to sleep in the day room because I'm a juvenile. They want me in the cell. They put me in the cell. I'm in the cell, put me on the floor because the two older guys are already in there, whatever. No complaints. I'm happy. I mean, not happy, but I can come out and watch TV. I can, you know, you know shower freely. I can, whatever the case may be. About a month, month and a half after being in protective custody, one of the guys that was in my cell, the guy that was on the top bunk, no, excuse me, the guy that was on the bottom bunk leaves. He gets transferred to another, he's out of there. So now the way that the, the, the jail hierarchy works, if you're, if you're on the top bunk and the bottom bunk becomes empty, you go down to the bottom bunk and the guy that's on the floor goes into the top bunk and the new man that comes into the cell goes on the floor. So he leaves. No, I automatically, the guy on the top bunk drops his stuff down to the bottom. I roll my stuff up, throw it up onto the top bunk. I got a bed now. I'm no longer sleeping on the floor. Great. They put a white guy in there. His name is Robert. I cannot remember his last name. I don't know. I didn't know anything about him. But when he comes into the cell, he looks, and he's like, yo, whose stuff is that on the top bunk? I'm like, it's mine. And he's like, yeah, you got to move it. Mm. I was like, nah, I'm not. What do you mean I got to move it? That's my bunk. And he's like, nah, they told me I'm on the top bunk. And I'm like, 
I'm not moving my stuff. Like, so it turned into a whole big argument. Um, he took my stuff and threw it on the floor. I punched him in the face and ended up getting into a fight with a full-grown man in the county jail. Uh, um, he probably would have hurt me if he was smarter. Like he grabbed, like, like he ended up having me like in a chokehold, and but I kicked his feet from under him and like threw myself back on him, and he fell and hit his head on the on the bars, like he banged his head on the bars. Anyway, I went to lock up. We both went to lock up for fighting, um, and then it, just, it 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 was like, okay, we can't put you back up there. He has to go up there because he was a pedophile, oh. so he had to go back up there. And they're telling me they was gonna put me back in segregation unit. And and it was just like no like like I'm not so again they made me sign a waiver saying that I would that that I would be responsible for myself if I went to general population. Okay, but you didn't have to stay in that same cell or whatever with the guy at the top. No, 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 no. When when, when, we, when I came out of lockup, okay, it was the conversation that I had with the warden and social services was, do you want to go back to segregation, back to twenty three and one, mm-hmm. or do you want to sign a waiver and just go into general population? Okay, so this twenty three and one. Protective study, custody, custody, and then and general, general population. population. That's what it is. So we got three okay. different categories. So now you're going into general population. I'm going into general population. Okay. Because I have a murder, I'm going to what is known as the body block, mm-hmm. where everybody in the, on the block is there for either for, for murder or something that, like atrocious assault, attempted murders. You know, it, it's where they have the worst of the worst. Not a great, not a great experience, but by far the best experience of my my incarceration at that point. Why? Because I had an older brother who was very was in and out of prison his whole life, and everybody knew me as his little brother. So when I came in, people took me under their wing and just was kind of like nobody. You were protected. Yeah, protected to a degree. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't let nobody hurt me, but they made me stand on my own two feet. As weird as that sounds. Mm-hmm. So, like, if I got into an argument with somebody, it was, all right, go in the room, go fight. Like, go handle your business. But they would never let it go too far. So you spend two years in jail. Then you have your trial, which lasted five days. And then you're convicted. And you're in, before the break, you you said you were convicted to essentially life in prison, right? Yeah, you like, said you yeah, weren't going to be up gonna, for parole for, what, 56 years 55 or 55 years 55 until the year years. 2045. So you hear that at 16. What went through your mind when that happens? You hear that that this is your life. Um, complete honesty? Nothing. Why do I say that? I think that at that time, I, I was more concerned with my day-to-day life and my day-to-day safety. Like, like I was checked out through my whole trial. Like Because, the, again, it, it's... And it's hard to explain it in hindsight, I guess. I mean, I guess it's easier to explain in hindsight, maybe. But Camden County Jail, like, I've watched men be raped. I've watched men be killed. I've watched a man be thrown off of the top of a, the top tier. I've watched a guy get his neck cut from his from one side, like, like complete 180 around his neck, right? I watched a, 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 a man with his face stuffed into the porthole as he was being raped from inside the cell, right? I, I'd seen I'd seen three people kill themselves, like hang themselves. Like I, I just, at that time, I didn't, like, it was just like every day was I would leave for those five days. I would leave 
early in the morning, they wake you up, bring you over to the courthouse. And the only thing during that, during that time I, that I thought about was, what am I going to be faced with when I go back today? Right? I, I, this is not an exaggeration. Between June 27th, 1990, when I got locked up, and June and, and October of 1992, when I was sent to prison, I probably had like 140 fights. Wow. Right? Mm-hmm. I played basketball, so there was always a fight over basketball. Mm-hmm. There was always one of my friends getting into something and me being pulled into the middle. You play cards. Everything that you do in that environment is a potential matchstick for for, for violence, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then because I was so small, like, and, and this is just me being honest, because I was so small, any perceived threat, I had to respond to, I had to over-respond to, yeah, right. right? Again, by the time I by the time I left the county jail, I was only 130 pounds, right? I was five five mm-hmm. five four 130 pounds. I was small. It prepared me, sadly, for prison in a way that no one should ever be prepared for prison, right? Because violence was my answer at every turn, right? You don't like what I said, do something about it. You don't like what I did, let's fight about it. You don't like this, do that about it. Do you want what I got? Come take it. Everything was. Aggression, 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 aggression. Um, so when I got sentenced, it was when I got sentenced, to be honest with you, at the time my brother was down, my brother was in East Jersey State Prison. And in my mind, that's the only thing I'm thinking about. Like, I'm gonna go down, I'm gonna get down to the prison with my brother and I'll be okay. Because of my brother. So what, what people don't know about this is like I digress a little bit. My brother was a career criminal, been in and out of prison his whole life, but he's also a um a lifelong dope fiend, like like he had a heroin addiction. Was he older than you? Yeah, he's the oldest. Okay. I'm the youngest. Okay. Um, but he but but he was also a fourth degree black belt. Oh wow. Right. So for me, my brother's always been my superhero. No matter what happens, if I'm around my brother, I'm gonna be okay. That was probably my prevailing thought when they said the sentence. The numbers didn't even make sense to me. Like the numbers just like you at fifteen years old, you tell somebody, wait. You tell somebody, wait six months until Christmas. Tell a 15-year-old, 14-year-old, wait till Christmas. Wait for six months. That's a lifetime to them. 55 years sounded like wah, 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 wah. Mm-hmm. Like I just did, it, it didn't register. Mm-hmm. It didn't register until months later, like months later. Like, like yo, I'm going to die in here for something I didn't even do, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. At the time, it didn't register. It, it was just, you know part of the thing like like part of what was going on you said something uh, really interesting during the break that we had just to give us a sense of the timeline this was you went into prison before what's the 411 mary j Blige's yep. album came out and it's like 1992 that's a long time yep. ago so you're really really young and you're not i guess as scared because you spent a couple of years in jail so you kind of you know you, right. you've been doing this for a while but you get in do you have any hope? Do you have any aspirations to eventually leave? What, what What's your thinking? Um, initially, you go in with the belief that, particularly, I think that, that, particularly when you didn't do it, when you legitimately didn't do what they said you did, you have a sense of hope, like, it's all going to come out. It's, 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 I just got to find a way to prove it, right? That sense of hope has an ebb and flow to it. Right at some days, like like you asked me, like yeah, man, I'll be out of here soon. I used to tell, I used to, I, I used to believe that I would be home in ten years. Like it, like that was like my realistic expectation. Like, okay, my 
my trial took two years. It's going to take this much time for the appeal, for them to hear this, 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 and that. They'll probably give me time for the kidnapping and robbery, which would be 10 years. That's kind of what I figured. That 10 years came and went like nothing, gone. Did you get visits from any like extended family members? What about Debbie? Where is she and all of this? It, it, I, I she see, out of the picture? When I was in the county jail, Debbie used to come and see me every now and then. But we just had like, like I think that at that point in my life, I, I, I started to realize like, you're not for me. Like, like you, like, I didn't, again, I didn't know what her medical conditions were, like her, her mental health issues were, but just being frank, she was crazy as hell. Like, like she would just be saying stuff, and I'd be like, what? Like, what are you, like, what's wrong with you? Like, and I just stopped. But when I went to prison, I didn't see her. I didn't see her not one time in prison. My sister used to come and see me on a regular basis. Okay, right. My, my sister. Your sister, yes. Yeah, she used to come and see me on a regular basis for, okay. like, the first 10 years. The first 10 years. 10, 12 years. My childhood sweetheart, who, who is now my wife, she used to come and see me pretty regularly. I mean, we had, you know, moments where she didn't come for a while, whatever the case may be, but... Um, I think that going in so young allowed me to adopt family easier, right? In mm-hmm. turn, inside, like, mm-hmm. like like people, you know. I I think that I'm a nice person, mm-hmm. you know. I, I like I I don't I've never set out to harm anyone, anything like that. So people took to me. I had friends. I had people that I called my brothers that I'm still in touch with to this day. Some on the inside, some on the outside, and um, a lot of times they helped me keep that hope alive, no matter how bad it got, it was like, you know, like, get up and keep fighting, right? Like, like you're not allowed to give up. You're not allowed to quit. I'll tell you, like, the darkest time for me was in, like, 2006, 2005, 2006. So New Jersey had passed some legislation which allowed for incarcerated people to seek post and post-conviction DNA testing. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to get a lawyer to help me do it, but they wouldn't. I couldn't find a lawyer to help me do it. I didn't have the funds for it. So I buckled down and I learned it. I, I, I literally studied <laughs> the statutes, studied the case law, studied, and I wrote my own motion on by hand on a yellow tablet asking the court for DNA, for uh, post-conviction DNA testing. Mm-hmm. They granted me a hearing. I went in there, basically argued, you know, my, my position was is per the state's offerings during trial, the rape, the, the murder took commit, was committed during the commission of the rape. So while whoever was raping her was raping her, they strangled her. That was the state's contention. Mm-hmm. My argument to the court was, well, if that be the case, the, the state's position, DNA evidence not only excludes me from the rape, but it excludes me from the murder. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, um, collateral estoppel prevents the state from changing that position now, mm-hmm. right? The judge agreed with me, said, well, you're right, because the state's argument was, well, even if it clears him on the rape, it doesn't clear him on the murder. And the judge's position was like, well, no, he's right. They ordered they, they ordered DNA testing. The, so the ironic thing is, is that the same doctor who testified during my trial about the blood testing was now the head of the forensic lab at the mm. New Jersey State Police Crime Lab. Mm-hmm. They asked me, was I okay with allowing that agency to do the testing? I didn't have money, I didn't, so I didn't really have a choice. They asked you out of, it's perfunctory, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I, if I say no, then I got to come up with $12,000 to do a test I don't have. So I'm like, yeah, test it, because I know what the test is going to say. They do the testing, 
Tess comes back, says there's no way that I could be the the contributor to the crime scene evidence. The guy's name is Joseph Petersack. Come in on a motion for a new trial based on newly discovered evidence. They assigned me an attorney, great attorney, uh, um, Mr. Klein. He passed away, I think, but great attorney, public defender. Comes in and he makes a very strong argument, right? Joseph Petersack, the head forensic scientist, gets on the stand and says to the judge, had I had the benefit of this evidence in 1992 when we went to trial, I would have told you then that there's no way he could have committed the, committed this rape, right? My argument still, well, if I can't have committed the rape, then I couldn't have committed the murder because by the state's own position, the two are yoked together. Right. Now, the judge, remember what I told you, the judge said, if he's right, then this disrupts a lot of things. Sure. So during the motion for the new trial, the judge denies the motion and says, this, he says three things. He admitted to the rape. So just because his semen isn't there, maybe he didn't come. Don't ask him. Thanks, judge. Um, second, the victim had defensive wounds, defense like defensive marks on mm-hmm. her shins mm-hmm. from trying to kick someone off of her. Mm-hmm. So it proves that she was raped. And I don't have any marks on me. Right. Like, I, I don't have any marks whatsoever on me. Wow. And then he says, outside of that, it doesn't negate the murder. So he went contrary to everything that he said. Right. And here... I think I still have the letter to prove it to you this day. Finished the motion for a new trial. He denies the motion, sending me back to prison. I'm walking out of the courtroom. He picks up a stack of paper. It has to be no less than 20 sheets. Mm-hmm. Mr. Bell, would you like a copy of the written opinion or do you want me to mail it to you? Mm. Now, mind you, the significance of this is that we took live testimony today. Right? You had the forensic expert, the guy who is responsible for all of the testing from... He made up his mind in advance. You made up your mind in advance. So nothing that... That man could have came in there and said, man, that guy was on the moon when this happened. Mm. You had already made up your mind. And as soon as he said it, I said, excuse me? I stopped. Like, in the thing, you know, I had the sheriff's... I'm like, what? I said, how you got an opinion? We just had the hearing and we just took... And I turned and pointed to the attorney. I said, Mr. Klein, you see this, right? And Mr. Klein sent me a letter saying, I acknowledge that the judge had a written opinion the day of. And what became of that? Not was a damn appeal thing. or anything like that? Nothing came of it. Wow. New Jersey is like a pit bull. Right. It will not let go of anything. Is that judge still around? I don't know. His name was Judge Einan. I don't yeah. know if he's still around. Mm. I don't know if he's still around. Yeah, because so now, because this is 2006, you've been in prison now. 16 years. Right. Well, I've been incarcerated for 16, 16 years, years, but in prison for 14 years. Mm-hmm. And you had said that, you know, there were ebbs and flows in terms of how you felt. So this was obviously one of those down that periods, was probably down. For a while. Like, I, I, I came back, bro, and I'm telling you, like, I, I, I shut down, like, completely for months. Like, I just, like, it, it, it's finding the strength to get up and eat was a task like it, it was if i wasn't so afraid of hurting myself i would have killed myself you have been listening to the surge experience stay tuned for part two of lawrence bell i've been on a low i've been taking my time i feel like i'm out of my mind it feel like my life ain't mine i don't want to be alive i don't